Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Still no deal on the debt ceiling, just seven days away from a potential default. Find out where things stand before lawmakers leave town today for the Memorial Day weekend. The longest sentence handed down so far in connection with January 6th. The founder of Oath Keepers gets 18 years in prison. Speaking of January 6th, Bank of America allegedly handed the FBI a list of customers who made transactions in D.C. on and around that date, but the agency reportedly didn't ask them to do it. A big win for an Idaho couple today after the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that the EPA doesn't have jurisdiction over their property. Their attorney explains the details. House Republicans gained support from the Biden White House on a bill cracking down on illegal fentanyl. But many Democrats break with the White House, opposing the measure. Lawmakers are examining so-called loopholes in America's trade policy. One of the policies allows millions of packages to be shipped to the U.S. every day without meaningful inspections. Congressional leaders and the White House are continuing to negotiate on the debt ceiling last minute. Still no deal yet, seven days away from a potential default. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said their teams worked around the clock overnight on a debt ceiling deal. The U.S. has one week before it reaches the potential X date, the earliest date the government could run out of money and be unable to pay its bills. Speaker McCarthy and I have had several productive conversations and our staffs continue to meet as we speak, as a matter of fact, and they're making progress. I've made clear time and again defaulting on our national debt is not an option. Weeks of negotiations between Republicans and the White House have failed to produce a deal, in part because the Biden administration has resisted negotiation. McCarthy is holding out for steep spending cuts that Republicans are demanding in exchange for their vote to raise the nation's borrowing limit. I sat down with the president February 1st. We passed the bill in April, long before they ever said the dead time was June 1st. Republicans have done everything they can. The White House has offered to freeze next year's 2024 spending at current levels. But the Republican leader says that's not enough. Lawmakers are expected to leave town on Thursday for the Memorial Day weekend and not expected back at work until Tuesday. That's just two days from the potential X date. A federal judge has just handed down the longest sentence so far over the January 6th Capitol breach. The founder of Oath Keeper, Stuart Rhodes, today got 18 years in prison. Rhodes was convicted of seditious conspiracy in connection to the Capitol breach. He was not in D.C. on the day, but members of his organization were. A U.S. district judge in D.C. handed down the sentence. She addressed Rhodes directly, saying, quote, What we absolutely cannot have is a group of citizens prepared to take up arms in order to foment a revolution, and that's what you did. Rhodes maintains that he is a political prisoner. And speaking of the Capitol breach, the House Judiciary Committee wants more information on what Bank of America told the FBI. The bank allegedly supplied a list of customers who made transactions near the Capitol on or around January 6th. As part of the committee's larger probe into the FBI, they believe the agency received information about American citizens without a legal process. Fox News reports that the chair of the committee, Representative Jim Jordan, and the chair of the Weaponization Committee sent a letter to the bank CEO. 
In it, they request all records related to customer data provided to the FBI. A whistleblower recently testified that the bank voluntarily data mined its customer base to compile a list of who used a debit or credit card between January 5th and 7th in 2021. The list was allegedly created without a directive from the FBI and not based on criminal conduct of the customers. The committee also learned from a different source that people who purchased a firearm with a bank card were placed at the top of the list. Bank of America has until June 8th to respond to the request. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of an Idaho couple today in a ruling that limits the EPA's jurisdiction over wetlands. NTD's Arlene Richards has that story. After 15 years, Michael and Chantal Sackett can finally build a home on land they purchased near an Idaho lake. This comes after the Supreme Court's unanimous decision on Thursday limiting the Environmental Protection Agency's jurisdiction over wetlands. The Sacketts were represented by Pacific Legal Foundation, a conservative group that advocates for property rights. Attorney Charles Yates explained the case. So the Sacketts dispute with the EPA goes all the way back to 2007 when the Sacketts, uh, a family who live in Priest Lake, Idaho, uh, started uh, to build a single-family home on a residentially zoned lot. Shortly after breaking ground, officials from the federal government, from EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers, entered their property and ordered that all work be ceased immediately. About six months later, the agencies then followed up with a compliance order in which they threatened the Sackets with tens of thousands of dollars per day in civil penalties uh, should they fail to immediately comply and cease all work on the property. He said the agencies claimed that the property was connected to navigable water through a chain located underneath roads and tributaries, and that the connection caused the lot to be defined as a wetland under the Clean Water Act. And what does the Clean Water Act say about water near a property or on land? So the Clean Water Act says nothing at all about that. The Clean Water Act provides EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers with permitting authority uh, to regulate the discharge of pollutants into so-called navigable waters of the United States. Now, he said the EPA has intensified their authority under the act to require families to seek federal approval before building a house on their own property. And what was the Supreme Court's response to the EPA's argument and to the case overall? So the Supreme Court unanimously rebuked EPA in this case. The Supreme Court unanimously held that the Sackett's property is not a regulable water under the Clean Water Act. And because of this decision, he said the Sacketts and other property owners don't have to get a federal permit to build on their property, but... It's always wise, I believe, given the, the agency's uh, pugnacious attitude towards the Clean Water Act to ensure that you are not uh, uh, discharging pollutants into uh, areas that the federal government considers itself to have authority over. We reached out to the EPA for comment on this case, but we haven't heard back yet. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And in a rare display of bipartisanship, President Biden is backing House Republicans' HALT Fentanyl Act. The bill, which passed the House today, permanently designates fentanyl-like substances among the most dangerous drugs. But some lawmakers tell NTD that more needs to be done to counter the fentanyl crisis. NTD's Melina Wisecup has the details from Capitol Hill. 
More than 150 people die every day from overdosing on fentanyl. The epidemic is described by the DEA as the deadliest drug threat our nation has ever encountered. And in an attempt to combat this today, the House passed a bill that would list fentanyl as a Schedule One narcotic. And Republicans say that there are more aspects to consider. It hasn't always been fentanyl, but what has been one of the common denominators in the problem is what's going on at our border and how the drugs get into this country. The whole, the whole drug problem is multifaceted and we need to address it. You got to deal with it at the source, which is our southern border. It's, that's how it's getting in. And so I would say even though this bill is important, the most serious bill is our border security package that we passed a couple of weeks ago. There were many Democrats who joined with Republicans to support this bill, although one of them told me that they would have liked to have seen some changes to it, but he described this issue as too serious to delay action on. This is not the way I would write the bill, but since I know it's a work in progress and something that's so devastating, Congress needs to take action. And President Biden does support this GOP-led bill, writing in a statement that the act includes critical components for the administration's plan to combat the supply of illicit fentanyl. The bill passed with 289 yes votes, while 132 Democrats and one Republican opposed it. Now, some are concerned about using criminal penalties to combat what they describe as a public health crisis. Mandatory minimums just don't work. Uh, you need to have... Uh circumstances differ from case to case. We know that China plays a role in trafficking this illegal fentanyl. Can you give our audience an understanding of to what level does China play in trafficking this fentanyl and is there a way you all can hold the regime accountable for this? Yeah, no, they play a big role. Well, I call it Xi Jinping's gang. To me, it almost seems like a criminal enterprise of what they're utilizing to try to get into the United States because they know of the havoc that it, it creates. The bill is now headed over to the Senate where it could be tweaked before final passage in both chambers and then off to the White House where the president is expected to sign it. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Turning our attention now to a new plan put out by the Biden administration today. The strategy says it reaffirms the U.S.'s unwavering commitment to Israel's existence, legitimacy and security. Is it enough to combat the rise in anti-Semitism? Earlier today, I spoke with the managing director of the Coalition for Jewish Values, Rabbi Yaakov Menken, for his perspective. Rabbi Menken, the Biden administration has a new plan to combat anti-Semitism, incidents of which have been rising in the U.S. To start with, I'd like to hear your response to the plan. You generally, the fact that they're doing an all-government strategy is really overdue because of this rise in anti-Semitism. It's very good that they're doing it. Unfortunately, the current implementation, as outlined in the, today by the administration, is deeply flawed. That's how I would put it. Tensions have been rising over how to define anti-Semitism, which you've said will allow real anti-Semitism to fester. Could you explain more about that? I mean, that's really the problem. I, I don't know, and I don't think any of my peers are aware of any colleague traditionally trained Orthodox rabbi who doesn't recognize that economic warfare against Israel, like boycotts, comes out of classic anti-Semitic economic warfare against Jews. A hundred percent that it's anti-Semitic. There's something called the Nexus document, which tries to paper that over and claim that it's a legitimate anti-Israel political position. 
And when that is put up against the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, which clearly outlines the various anti-Semitic positions used against Israel, uh, that just muddies the water. Yet the Biden administration has now praised both of those documents, giving precedence to the IRA definition, perhaps, but also commending the Nexus document. And that's simply unacceptable. And so where do you see this leading? Well, what it's going to do is muddy the water. Like, like you said, it's going to allow real legitimate anti-Semitism to fester. We see out in the field, you see on college campuses, that people start with these anti-Israel protests that promptly devolve into finding excuses to hate Jews. And that's, what's, that's what has now been enabled when you have a document like the Nexus document claiming, oh, that's not anti-Semitic. If it's not anti-Semitic, why is it that Palestinian flags are used against Jews interchangeably with swastikas? Now, you've pointed to the administration's ties with certain organizations like the Council on American-Islamic Relations and the Southern Poverty Law Center as a cause for concern. Could you tell me more about that? Well, it, it's more than a cause for concern. We've directly pointed out that both of these organizations are encouraging and inciting anti-Semitism. The Southern Poverty Law Center puts a series of conservative organizations in the category of hate groups. That includes places like Family Research Council, but it also includes people who are fighting radical Islamic terrorism, which the SPLC does not identify as a collection of hate groups. It's amazing because more people have been killed, more Jews have been killed in the last 50 years by radical Islamic terror than any of the various groups that they do specify. So they're masking it, they're covering it over, and they're working together with the Council on American-Islamic Relations, which encourages anti-Jewish boycotts and also has backed Hamas and has ties to the Hamas terror organization. It's quite alarming that the Biden administration would list them as partners and not list any Orthodox Jewish organization as a partner in their efforts to combat anti-Semitism. And so what do you think needs to be done from here to effectively address this rise in anti-Semitic incidents? There's, you know, it's, it's actually really simple. There's obviously, when I say that no Orthodox rabbi disagrees with the premise that boycotting Israel is anti-Semitic, it means that there is a collection of expertise there that they should be calling upon. We have millennia of experience fighting anti-Semitism. We were always led by rabbinic guidance. Why are none of those expert, classically trained rabbis being consulted? I don't mean our organization. I don't mean our people. I mean the really senior Orthodox rabbis who guide our community. Why are they not getting called upon to help outline what anti-Semitism is and what it is not? Because the other thing you notice is that Orthodox Jews today, like on the streets of New York, for example, are overwhelmingly the preferred targets for random anti-Semitic attacks. That's what the administration could be doing, along with putting real teeth in these regulations and making the definitions very clear. All right, thank you so much. Always great to hear from you, Rabbi Yaakov Menken. Thank you. Really appreciate this opportunity. Up next, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signing an election reform bill into law while announcing his candidacy for president. A clarification to one law will make it easier for him to run. And Target loses $9 billion of value in a week 
following calls for a boycott over the company's LGBT kids clothing. We'll have analysis for you after the break. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis approving state law changes making it easier for him to run for president. He's also changing election rules for which he's already being sued. NTD's Ariane Pazdar spoke with a legal expert. Shortly before Florida Governor Ron DeSantis made this announcement on Twitter on Wednesday. Well, I am running for president of the United States to lead our great American comeback. He signed an election reform bill into law. Senate Bill 7050, which had already passed both chambers of the legislature, changes 27 state election rules. Most of those affect voter registration organizations. For example, that such organizations must renew their registration with the state for each election cycle. The time frame for organizations to submit forms to election officers is shortened from 14 to 10 days, and it will increase required maintenance activities. The ACLU of Florida responded to the new law, saying it's racist because black and Hispanic voters are five times more likely to be registered to vote by these organizations than white voters. Because of alleged racist intentions, Elias Law Group, founded by Mark Elias, already filed a lawsuit against the DeSantis administration. Mark Elias is a well-known election lawyer in Democratic circles. He represented Hillary Clinton in the Clinton campaign. Zach Smith is a legal fellow with the Heritage Foundation. He says he suspects political bias behind the lawsuit. According to him, the changes approved by the governor can increase election security. How likely is it that plaintiffs will actually win this case? Well, it's hard to read the tea leaves in these cases. The uh, initial lawsuit in the federal district court in Tallahassee has been assigned to a very uh, left-leaning liberal judge who has frequently ruled against Ron DeSantis in the state of Florida. However, he added that any decision by the court could always be appealed. Before DeSantis signed Wednesday's bill, it wasn't clear if he would have to resign as governor for his presidential run. That's due to the resign-to-run statute in Florida. However, the bill clarified the issue, clearing the way for DeSantis' run. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Is Twitter as a platform moving to the right? Fox News used to be the place where conservatives broke news, but now it seems to be Twitter. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced his presidential run on Twitter. The Daily Wire is moving its podcasts onto Twitter. And Tucker Carlson's new show will be exclusively on Twitter. NTD's Faye Quarter takes a look at what's going on. Is Twitter as a platform moving to the right? Many say it is. Ron DeSantis formally announced he's running for president on Twitter instead of on Fox News. And he did it in a conversation with Elon Musk. Conservative news site The Daily Wire has announced it's going to stream all its shows on Twitter starting May 30th. It calls Twitter the largest free speech platform in the world. And Tucker Carlson is launching his new show on Twitter. I don't think it's correct that Twitter's leaning towards the right or making sudden, some sudden move to the right. It's just that there's now an equalization of voices on the left and the right. Andrew Selipak is a social media professor at the University of Florida. 
He says that before Musk took over, Twitter's former executives were shadow banning and throttling down conservative content. After Musk took over and basically removed those restrictions, those voices that hadn't been being heard during COVID and were limited by the executives and the people at Twitter suddenly exploded onto the platform. Selipak says it makes sense for Carlson to launch his show on Twitter because he has a non-compete agreement with Fox News. He says it makes sense for The Daily Wire to use Twitter more to reach out to more of an audience. Selipak also says it makes sense for Musk to be part of Ron DeSantis's announcement. Selipak believes Musk is looking for an alternative to Biden and Trump. They're just saying, hey, listen, we're going to be a free, open exchange of ideas and you're going to have to, if you're, if you're not comfortable with that, then fine. Joe Kerrison is the chief marketing officer of Kerrison PPC. He says that it makes sense for a free market of ideas to exist somewhere and that just because this has attracted right-wing personalities, that doesn't mean the platform itself is moving to the right. Bay Quarter, NTD News. Target's market value is down $9 billion from where it was about a week ago when calls for a boycott erupted on social media. The controversy? Items in the company's Pride collection which included LGBT-themed products for children as young as infants. To discuss this and more, earlier today I spoke with Will Hild for his analysis. He's the executive director of the nation's oldest consumer protection agency, Consumers Research. Let's see that now. Will, Target is pulling some stock from its Pride collection, citing backlash over those products, some of which are aimed at children, and they're associated with a designer who's known for using satanic imagery, which the designer says Target is fully aware of. To begin, I'd like to get your reaction. How do you see this? Well, I think it's yet another example of a major corporation that has a huge retail face and footprint. Uh, who's been listening to the wrong voices within their own company. Often we see these corporations, as they've built out their so-called DEI departments, diversity, equity, inclusion, really focusing more on weird political pet projects and not serving their customers. The average target customer does not want to see their children targeted by LGBTQ, LGBTQ propaganda when they go in to, to simply buy a T-shirt. Um, and I think Target is finding out that out the hard way. It does seem to be part of a trend. We're looking also at Bud Light's profits, which are in decline weeks into its transgender controversy. And now it's reportedly offering some of its products for free with a rebate in some states. And the North Face has just come out with a f an ad featuring a man in drag. So do you expect more pushback from consumers on brands that they feel they don't align with? Yeah, I think what we're seeing here is the dam is finally breaking on the reservoir of frustration that consumers have with these brands who who ostensibly are supposed to be serving them with high quality goods and services and instead feel it's their position to preach to them about far left bizarre frankly uh, political issues um, and we've seen this you know this is a trend that has been on the increase but I think what's changed especially with the Bud Light controversy is that consumers have finally just had it and without any individual person leading any charge for a, for a boycott, you're seeing it happen uh, in a decentralized manner. You're seeing it with Bud Light. You're seeing it with Target. And I think you could see it with North Face, too. Target CEO last week defended woke companies as making good business decisions, saying that it's the right thing to do for society and great for branding, saying that it helps drive sales. How do you see the ESG program fitting into all of this? 
Well, certainly that assertion by that CEO is demonstrably false. We've seen these companies, as they faltered in these spaces, lose out on sales, and it's been bad for their bottom line. I think what consumers need to understand is that this isn't always an organic decision by a lot of the members of the C-suite. You have two major influences that are pushing these corporations in that direction. The first is coming from above. These are the large asset managers like BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard who use ESG metrics to push and bully corporate America into basically becoming a political utility for the far left or for the Democratic Party. The second is these DEI departments that I spoke about earlier, whose really only purpose is to push these companies in political directions. They don't really contribute to the company's bottom line. They soak up a bunch of resources. And again, they, they sit there and, and really their main job is to sort of lobby the company internally to take very divisive stances and put out very divisive products that don't serve their customer base. And what do you think needs to happen in order to move this issue forward toward better representation? You, you mentioned that it's a an organic process so far. Do you see anything else that needs to happen? Well, I would just encourage, as the nation's oldest consumer protection organization, uh, we would encourage consumers to feel empowered. It's sometimes easy when you see all these, these companies pushing uh, this level of nonsense and absurdity to feel like, you know, wh why are they doing this? You know, I'm just one little person. I can't, I can't, I feel like I'm being told what to do by all these corporations. And what we've seen from the Bud Light controversy to the Target controversy is that consumers should feel like they are in charge. They are, they are making a difference. These companies are now on their, on their back heels and they're going to have to go look at how these decisions were made. We've already seen Bud Light put several of their employees responsible for the Mulvaney disaster on, on leave. Hopefully they, they make that permanent leave. Um, and so I would just say consumers should find ways to get engaged, and they should very much make their voice heard, not just by simply not buying the product, but also by, by specifically communicating with the employee, uh, with the corporations in the form of, of phone calls to their customer service line and to, to, to emails. It may seem like that doesn't do a lot, but these corporations spend millions upon millions of dollars a year trying to maintain their positive brand identification. And when you send a message that they have harmed that, it does make a difference. Will Held, thank you so much. Always great to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Lawmakers are trying to figure out ways to improve America's trade policy. They want to make sure the U.S. isn't importing goods that use forced labor. And also to close the so-called loopholes that allow certain packages to bypass meaningful inspections. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. Witnesses testified Thursday before the Ways and Means Committee on America's Trade Policy, and one of the issues brought up was forced labor in the supply chain. Uyghurs held in forced labor in factories and internment camps in China. Garment workers held in forced labor in sweatshops in Bangladesh. And Michael Kanko, CEO of Import Genius, says he knows exactly how to help stop it, and he explained how his company works. Since 2007, Import Genius has helped make the global supply chain more efficient and more transparent by making shipment records from 17 countries, including the United States, easily searchable and user-friendly. He explained how Import Genius has been able to help clean up supply chains. This gap is also impacting our ability to stop Chinese forced labor. Many of the goods sourced from China that appear on the U.S. government's list of goods produced by child labor or forced labor are typically shipped by air. He added that U.S. Customs and Border Protection only publishes shipping data for cargo shipped by sea, but not for cargo shipped by air or by land, which make up 43% of U.S. import value. 
And Michael Stumo, CEO of Coalition for a Prosperous America, pointed out another issue known as the de minimis loophole. It allows over 2 million packages per day to enter the U.S. without meaningful inspection. Chairman Jason Smith rightly said de minimis is essentially a free trade agreement with China. Allowing China to exploit de minimis is in fact unilateral disarmament of our customs and trade laws. And he talked about the overall impact it has with America's relationship with China. We're building their military and we're building their ability to invade Taiwan. And it's because we can't figure out that we need to build and make stuff here and employ our people and get our profits. During the hearing, Representative Earl Blumenauer advised the witnesses that there is currently a proposal that would take away the transparency of maritime shipping data, and if passed, that would practically end all transparency for shipping data to the public. Jason Perry, NTD News. As artificial intelligence becomes more and more powerful, there is growing support to regulate the technology from world governments to technology companies. Microsoft proposed regulations for artificial intelligence today. This amid broader growing support for regulating this technology that's becoming increasingly more powerful. Microsoft proposed a requirement where AI systems must be able to completely shut down, similar to an emergency stop button. The maker of ChatGPT, OpenAI, likened artificial intelligence to nuclear energy and said that this technology comes with the possibility of existential risk and AI experts agree. Associate Professor of Computer Science at Rice University and Shumali Srivastava says people could use AI to generate computer codes that are malicious. There is, uh, there is a theoretical possibility that the codes that are generated by these AI could be malicious and could get access to the airline control system, the traffic control system. It could also lead to an ex existential threat. The OpenAI team said that superintelligence will be more powerful than other technologies humanity has to contend with. But currently a more immediate concern with AI is misinformation. That's according to Aaron Rafferty, CEO of tech company Standard DAO. There was an image, actually a couple images that, that we saw go up on uh, Twitter and, and just online where um, you see President Trump and you also see in a you know, parallel image President Biden and they're being arrested in New York City, in the public square. And it's very realistic. You know, in the future, we're going to be able to see uh, a, a number of uh, different ways that AI potentially um, being able to um, control the sentiment of people. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is also looking to develop a national AI strategy. But the question remains, how exactly do you regulate artificial intelligence? From my standpoint, um, obviously, I'm not a regulator. However, transparency is a, it's a good start. We need to know what types of assumptions these models are making and how they are actually, uh, you know, implementing this information and these models into the wider population. First thing you need to, first of all, educate people, everyone about like, look, just like Google search can give you wrong answers, these can give you wrong answers, misinformation. People know that information on Twitter, WhatsApp, whatever it is, it could be made up. People need to be aware the information can be made up and it could be made up every minute. The Biden administration is taking public input on how to regulate AI on areas like standards, investments, trust and safety practices. 
Coming up, Russia is storing nuclear weapons outside of its border. And the Wagner Group is pulling troops out of an eastern Ukrainian city, which they just said they conquered. And much of the world may consider the pandemic a thing of the past, but China isn't quite there yet. The country is bracing for yet another round of infections, an estimated 65 million per week when the wave is expected this summer. That and more after the break. All eyes are back on Russia. The nation is now storing nuclear weapons outside its borders. Meanwhile, a Russian paramilitary group begins to withdraw forces out of a Ukrainian city it recently conquered. NTD's Sam Wang brings us the latest update. Russian weapons are making their ways to Belarus. On Thursday, Russia signed a deal with its neighboring ally, deploying tactical nuclear warheads to a foreign territory for the first time since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. The Belarusian president said that the weapons transfer was already underway. The U.S. has condemned the arrangement but said that it won't be adjusting its nuclear posture in response. As we have made clear, the use of chemical, biological or nuclear weapons in this conflict would be met with severe consequences. Um, but in response to this report, I will just add we have seen no reason to adjust our strategic nuclear posture or any indications that Russia is preparing to use a nuclear weapon. Russian President Vladimir Putin stated that the U.S. and its allies have been waging a proxy war against Russia since the beginning of his invasion of Ukraine. As of now, Russia's stockpile of tactical nuclear weapons outnumbers that of the U.S. and NATO. And the United States believe that Russia has around 2,000 fully functioning warheads in its inventory. Meanwhile, Russia's Wagner paramilitary group is withdrawing troops out of the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. This comes just five days after the group declared it had complete control over the region. We are pulling units out of Bakhmut. It's 5 a.m. May 25th. Before June 1st, most units will be relocated to the rear camps. After 10 months of intense fighting, the city is officially in the hands of Russia. But the Wagner commander said that his men are exhausted and will be handing the region over to regular Russian troops whose manpower is already stretched. Wagner is now exchanging prisoner of war with Ukraine. Drone footage shows men in uniform being passed from one side to the other in an unidentified location. Ukraine says it secured the release of 106 captured soldiers. The capture of Bakhmut may score a significant victory for the Kremlin, but much uncertainty lies ahead as Ukrainian forces advance closer to the city's outskirts and prepare for a counteroffensive that could start at any given moment. Sam Wong, NTD News, New York. The U.S. is monitoring the next big wave of COVID-19 infections in China. It's expected to peak in June. A top Chinese epidemiologist predicts over 60 million will catch it per week in June. NTD's Juliet Song has that story. 65 million COVID-19 infections in China per week. That's what a top Chinese expert says could happen this June. Zhou Nanshan is the lead scientist at China's National Health Commission. Speaking at a biotech forum in China on Monday, Zhong said the upcoming wave of infections is already on the rise. He noted infections could hit 40 million per week by the end of this May, adding the new wave is driven by the new XBB variants of Omicron. To cope with the situation, Zhong said authorities are preparing new vaccines that target the XBB variants. Two of them already have initial approval. 
and three more are expected to be greenlit soon, though he didn't give details. Reacting to the news, a resident living in China told NTD that people fear harsh lockdowns more than actual infection. People are really afraid of COVID-19 lockdowns. They're less afraid of everything else. Stores closed their doors in droves during previous lockdowns. Beijing implemented severe lockdown measures after the CCP virus, which causes COVID-19, hit the country. The lockdowns sent China's economy reeling. Factories halted production. Businesses closed doors. Residents were banned from leaving their homes. The situation came to a head when a fire broke out in China's western Xinjiang region last year, killing 10 people. First responders were unable to reach the blaze due to blockades meant to keep residents inside. The tragedy sparked anger across China. Protests broke out around the country over Beijing's lockdown measures. Some protesters asked the Chinese Communist Party to step down. People also demanded freedom. Following the protests, Beijing lifted the lockdown measures and reopened its border. It remains to be seen how the next wave would play out. China said about 80 million elderly people in the country have not been vaccinated or boosted. This group is at a relatively high risk of infection. It remains to be seen how the next wave would play out. China said about 80 million elderly people in the country have not been vaccinated or boosted. This group is at a relatively high risk of infection. We'll keep you updated as the situation develops. Juliet Song, NTD News. The U.S. State Department said it's discussing the reports with allies and partners. Now turning our attention to the armed conflict in Sudan. Sporadic clashes between Sudan's army and a paramilitary force are being reported amid a week-long ceasefire. Local residents reported that clashes between rival military factions could be heard over several nights in parts of Sudan's capital. The U.S. State Department confirmed today that it had detected possible breaches in the ceasefire, observing the use of artillery, military aircraft and drones. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia helped mediate the ceasefire deal, which came after five weeks of intense warfare. The ceasefire was designed to allow for the delivery of aid and lay the groundwork for a more lasting truce. The fighting rose from a power struggle between Sudan's army and the paramilitary rapid support forces. The conflict has forced more than a million people to flee the country. And coming up, earning a six-figure income would likely be more than enough for most families of three. But in a handful of cities, you could still be broke even if you made $100,000 a year. And across the world on Mount Everest, a local guide has cheated death more times than anyone in recorded history. His feet and more when we return. of living. It's something we all need to consider when deciding on a place to call home. But there are 16 major cities in the country where earning $100,000 annually still won't be enough to get by for a family of three. And California is home to half of them. 
in eight California cities, you can earn $100,000 and still be broke. That's according to a study by LendingTree, a national loan company. And topping off their list at number one is San Jose, ranked as the most expensive city in the entire U.S. I'm originally from New York City, which is another city that's extremely expensive. So, um, yeah, I'm used to expensive cities, but this is crazy over here. I mean, you can just see it every day. Landing Tree reported that a family of three in San Jose earning six figures could still be in debt every month by about $1,500. That is surprising. I thought uh, maybe some, some city like San Francisco might top the list, but yeah, this is surprising. San Francisco was listed as the second most expensive city in the nation. The monthly income for a family of three was estimated at $8,333, but living expenses would be about $9,500. The survey sourced data from the U.S. Census Bureau to predict the cost of living. This includes transportation, child care, rent, vehicle costs, travel expenses, health care, food, taxes, and more. The survey also assumed the family put away $500 each month in savings. For sure, tech. I think that is the reason that this whole area is extremely expensive, just because of all the tech jobs that are in this area, and people are greedy, and they try to get as much money as possible, and then normal, everyday people can't afford to live here. Other California cities making the top 16 list were Riverside, Sacramento, and Stockton. Additional cities mentioned include San Diego, Los Angeles, Oxnard, north of Malibu, and Honolulu in Hawaii. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at next week's French Open. That's right, Steph. The draw for the French Open was revealed today, and the tournament favorites, Novak Djokovic, who's the only current player besides Rafael Nadal to win this clay court event more than once, and newly number one ranked Carlos Alcaraz will be in the same half, meaning if the two win out, they'd meet in the semifinals. The 20-year-old Alcaraz replaced Djokovic at the top of the rankings this week on the heels of his sparkling 30-3 record in 2023. Alcaraz has never been past the quarterfinals at Roland Garros, though a year ago, he became the first player ever to beat both Djokovic and Nadal at a clay court tournament when he won the Madrid Open last May. Now noticeably absent from the tournament is the 14-time winner Nadal, whose hip injuries suffered in January at the Australian Open has kept him sidelined. And in mountain climbing news, a 53-year-old Mount Everest guide summited the world's largest mountain for a record 28th time on Tuesday. Nepalese Sherpa Kemi Rita first reached the peak back in 1994 and has done so nearly every year since, and he says he has no plans to stop. Now, the mountain was first summited in 1953 by New Zealander Edmund Hillary and Sherpa guide Tenzing Norgay, and since then, thousands more have reached the peak. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, more playoff action. First in the NBA, the Celtics play the Heat in Boston down 3-1 and needing a win to extend the series after staying alive with a victory in Miami Tuesday night. And in the NHL, the Stars look to avoid a sweep at home as they host the Golden Knights. Vegas, meanwhile, is a win away from the Stanley Cup Finals matchup with Florida as the Panthers completed their sweep of Carolina last night with a 4-3 win. And finally, for you baseball fans, just six games on, but that includes a Braves-Phillies game in Atlanta and a matchup of the last two National League pennant winners. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave.
And lastly, a rooftop yoga class is taking place in the most elevated sky deck in the Western Hemisphere. It's being booked weeks in advance. Here's NTD's Sue Biamba with more. Tickets for the sky-high yoga class, 100 stories above Manhattan, are selling out weeks in advance. I think it works because it's extremely unique. Um, you get this amazing location in New York, a phenomenal view of the city, um, and you get to spend an hour up there having time to yourself and practicing yoga. The yoga on an open-air rooftop began during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is a tradition that really, I think, helped, helped get us through the pandemic in New York City. And it's something that we wake up early for every, uh, every Wednesday and, and look forward to every week. Equinox Gyms hosts sky-high yoga on the observation deck at 30 Hudson Yards every Wednesday morning in the spring and summer. Yoga enthusiasts pay $60 each and gather 1,100 feet in the air to practice yoga as the sun rises over the Manhattan skyline. I think it was very calming. Um, it was a nice way to kind of break away and set the intention for the morning and kind of focus on, you know, what are my intentions for the day and kind of experiencing, you know, what my day will look like. It's very beautiful. You really feel like in, on top of the world and you feel all this powerful energy, like you're really high in the air and you feel very strong and powerful and inspired that you live in this big city and there are so many possibilities and it's like everything is possible. At 100 stories high, the developers say it's the most elevated sky deck in the Western Hemisphere. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.